Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Coming up, we learn about efforts to increase affordable housing in our state. There are several proposals before Connecticut lawmakers. Advocates say one way to increase affordable housing is to reform zoning laws that keep towns segregated. We'll learn about a coalition of groups that are working to increase housing diversity. That's later. First, we wanted to talk about land preservation. Only about 7% of the state is actively farmed. The Connecticut Department of Agriculture has a program to preserve farmland with the help of state and federal dollars. The Jones Family Farms in Shelton, Connecticut is one of the farms in our state to, to preserve its land for agricultural use. Joining us now to talk about it is Terry Jones, owner of Jones Family Farm and Winery in Shelton. Terry, welcome to the show. Well, thank you, Lucy, and uh, thank you for taking up this subject. So I understand, uh, oh, Terry, I understand your farm is now being worked by seven generations of your family. Can you talk about how your farm has changed? It's changed enormously from when uh, my great-great-grandfather put the land together in the 1850s, and it was initially a very uh, uh, mixed uh, production of sheep and and uh, fruit, and then the uh, with the industrialization and and uh, the Lower Naugatuck Valley uh, dairy became important for several generations, and then my dad with uh, Yukon 4-H uh, fell in love with forestry and began planting trees during the Great Depression, and in uh, 1947, he sold 12 of these trees for Christmas trees, and we now sell close to 12,000 each Christmas. And then I merged into organic vegetables and strawberries, and uh, our son came back from Cornell uh, at the beginning of the 21st century and uh, planted (laughs) grapes, so we now have a vineyard. So there's a you have a lot going on uh, on your farm. It's important to diversify, Terry, when you think about how to keep farms uh, sustainable. Absolutely, absolutely, and the uh, it's all about the soil and it's all about the weather. And diversity gives you uh, uh, the strength. If, if uh, something fails, uh, another will succeed. And it's very interesting. I'm. I'm sitting here in, uh, uh, at the farm looking out at the winery, which is the ultimate source to plowshares because that in the mid-50s was the U.S. Army uh, Nike missile site here. And uh, we've t- our son has turned it into a wine production. So. <laughs> 
Describe the property that you have now, and, and I mentioned that your family decided to preserve the land for agricultural use only. Why did you decide to make that move? We decide we've always been uh, stewards of the land, and we recognize that, uh, that for sustainability into the future, uh, we needed to make the uh, uh, put it in sort of a, 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 a state where it wouldn't have to be sold to pay estate taxes. And uh, so that's what we we did, and it has allowed us to expand. We've used the proceeds from the sale of development rights to acquire adjacent land. So we've really developed a core of several hundred acres, which is, is uh, gives us the opportunity to have a wide variety of cover crops and uh, contribute to the ecosystem services that are so great a part of Connecticut agriculture, what we do um, in the community. So it's, it's really created a, a, a historically in recent decades, there's sort of been an impermanent syndrome with, with Connecticut farming, you know, was it really going to last? And I think with these programs, and uh, public uh, interest in local Connecticut-grown food. Uh, we're solidly entering a new era where, where farming is, is going to be here in the long run if we're smart with our public policies about it. Can you describe the process to preserve your land and how uh, the federal and state government can aid local farmers, Terry? Sure. The uh, Farmland Preservation Program, which we were one of the early states uh, in, in uh, the country with it back in 1978. And I might quickly add, Connecticut has been a leader. In 1963, we established uh, Public Act 490, which is current use property taxation for farmland. And Connecticut was the first state out of 50 states to take that move. And every other state has followed uh Connecticut as a leader. But moving ahead to the late 70s, the Department of Ag uh, um, PDR program was enacted with the General Assembly, and it's, it works with the farmland owner applying to the department to uh, uh, see if it's qualified. The soils have to be of, of good quality, and, and there's a, a whole list of protocols, and it works its way through, and originally many of the things were solely uh, protected with the development rights by the state of Connecticut money. Now virtually every project is partnerships with federal and uh, land trusts and municipal. So it's it's evolved into a very sustainable um, program of, I, I say, fierce cooperation where different entities work together for a common goal. So now your farmland is preserved in perpetuity. Uh, this Connecticut Ag uh, Preservation Program I mentioned, uh, so far there's been more than 44,000 acres preserved on 370 farms, uh, uh, and the goal of the state is to preserve 130,000 acres. But Terry, as someone who uh, comes from a family, uh, farm family, 
What is the biggest threat to Connecticut farms and farmlands? Is it this uh, um, development, uh, open space that is encroached on by uh, so many subdivisions that we see popping up around our state? Well, that's certainly uh, a factor for sure. And that's why these uh, preservation programs and other programs like Community Investment Act have really uh, been very helpful in that regard. Uh, the, certainly, the securing uh, and permanency of, of land to, uh, to farm on is, is, is absolutely critical. You make a farmer uh, makes investments that uh, should last a long time. You just can't rent a farm for a couple of years and, and then have it pulled out from under you. you you're investing in its livestock structures and irrigation and so many things. So the, the, the ability to uh, have uh, control of your land for, I mean, the ultimate thing is multi-generations, is, is so, so critical. Of course, the other challenges of, of weather, we have to come to grips with the fact there is climate change, and we do see more and more swings of weather from dry to, to too wet and uh, freezing and uh, too much heat. So uh, that's the beauty of farmland protection, because these lands, forests uh, and fields, help to contribute to um, the carbon sink and lowering greenhouse gases and uh, provide other ecosystem services that are help uh, keep keep our climate uh, on a steady keel. And this, I, I think, is going to be one of the great societal challenges uh, for our country as we move ahead over the next uh, few decades. Mm. And, of course, Sorry. the... Uh, the ability to produce food is, is incredibly vital. Mm -hmm. We only have three days supply of food this side of the Hudson River, as our Commissioner mm -hmm. of Ag, Diane Herbert, has pointed out. And the more we can do with local food and uh, even urban agriculture, which is another whole topic, uh, is going to be very, very important. Uh, Terry, coming up, we're going to be talking more about how uh, local towns control the way land is used, what kinds of housing can and cannot be built. As someone who comes from a farm family, uh, how does how would you uh, advise towns and the state to balance preservation needs, but also along with development needs and how municipalities can think about different types of housing for people from different backgrounds? That is a great challenge in Connecticut because we have multiple towns, 169, and uh, I, I think, you know, I spoke about fierce cooperation. I think there has to be collaboration between towns. Uh, towns are notorious traditionally to put something on the edge of their, their town, uh, that's maybe not the, the best land use for the adjacent town and its edge. So uh, I think we have to learn to, to collaborate and work together. And uh, I, 
I'm a, I'm a big fan of, of cooperation. I, I look to the city of New Haven. It's uh, my seat on the Community Foundation for Greater New Haven. We've, we've got Concorp and Concat working to rehab and create affordable housing in, in many parts uh, of New Haven. Doing on the cusp of doing great work there. At the same time, the city has a great opportunity with a 26-acre property that was formerly uh, farmland used by the Townsend family. So there's there's so many opportunities, even in the cities, for increasing livability and, and equity and underserved population. We do have to. Uh, work on this uh, everywhere in Connecticut. We're a small state. We're uh, a precious state. We're the land of steady habits, but uh, sometimes we need to uh, uh, look at things with fresh eyes and, and sustainability. Sustainability and livability. Terry Jones, we thank you so much for your time today here on the show. Again, he's owner of Jones Family Farm and Winery in Shelton. Thanks, Terry. Thank you. Carry on. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. After the break, we're going to talk more about how towns zone land and how that affects the different kinds of housing in our state. You can join our conversation, 888-720-9677, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at where we live. where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel, broadcasting remotely. We just heard from a Shelton, Connecticut farmer about his family's efforts to preserve their seventh generation farm for agriculture. Now, how does the preservation of land intersect with efforts in Connecticut to increase affordable housing and expand housing diversity in our state? Joining me now to help answer that question is Jacqueline Rabe Thomas. She's education, housing, and inequality reporter for the Connecticut Mirror. Jackie, welcome back to the show. Thanks for having me, Lucy. Now, we know that preserving agriculture in our state that has lost so much farmland is important, but can you give us some examples of where some towns in our state have leaned on preservation as a way to limit development of affordable housing? Sure. So Simsbury comes to mind. Um, They've been in a years-long fight over a a 288-acre land in that is considered it's called Meadowland and they have um, for decades fought it it's been turned down it's gone to the courts etc it would it was proposed for 296 homes to be there and of those 30% would be reserved for affordable housing Um, what they're trying to do now is to preserve it for open space Um, historic open space. Um, They are trying to fundraise based on that Martin Luther King spent some time in Connecticut in the 1940s, in the early 1940s, um, 
And he, you know, there's been a lot of history written about his time in Simsbury about how um, he really got sort of his first taste of integration when he lived and worked on the the farm, the tobacco farms in Simsbury. Um, And so there's sort of this debate between whether or not that should be preserved for for that historical context versus whether or not it should be allowed for a portion of that to be developed into some affordable housing. Um, It it comes in a town that has a fraction of Black and Hispanic people compared to other parts of the state. Um, You know, only 2% of the population in Simsbury is Black compared to 12% statewide. Um, Similar disparities in Hispanic population in the town. Um, I had the luxury to to follow around a woman who was trying to move into Simsbury a a year ago. And um, it took her a very long time to find a home in that community that was in her price range because there really is no affordable housing stock for people from um, different income brackets there. I believe we spoke with her uh, on the show with you, Jackie, I think last year, was it Crystal Carter that you were following? Yep, that's her. She um, she is a single mom, and she has her kids going to Simsbury Public School. She's a heart. She's a longtime Hartford resident, and she um, won the school choice lottery to to for a spot in Simsbury Public School. So every day, her children were getting on the bus and traveling there, and she decided she wanted to live there. Um, it was a community that she wanted to to be in. She saw the benefits of it. She works at a grocery store in town. Um, but when it came time for her to actually try and find a place, it just was place after place just didn't meet her budget um, or didn't accept her housing choice voucher because it was out of her price range or because people just don't take housing vouchers or there just wasn't any housing stock to her, for her to even look at. So to clarify, uh, this move to have open space, uh, more than 288 acres in Simsbury, uh, that happened after uh, there was a plan to have multifamily housing. And so I'm wondering, uh, when we think about the amount of affordable housing in the town of Simsbury, uh, remind us again, we talk about affordable housing, what we're actually talking about. Sure. So affordable housing can be defined as two ways, Um, whether or not it's sort of reserved for people who make under a certain um, under the state's median household income and is reserved for and is subsidized. Um, But so that's, you know, sort of the affordable housing that most people think of, Um, you know, public housing, vouchers, um, 830G, where developers set aside a portion of their housing for affordable for folks from um, lower income brackets. Um, But then there's also what's what's called naturally occurring affordable housing, where if you have an acre of land and it's traditionally zoned for only one home, um, that's going to be a lot more expensive than if you allow for five or six homes to be on that um, that same parcel of land. And so that's sort of um, what people more people would consider naturally uh, naturally occurring affordable housing, where you're bringing down housing prices just because you're you're splitting up the cost of that land among um, multiple properties. Mm. What's interesting when we talk about uh, expanding housing diversity in our state, while there are people who appreciate uh, our open spaces uh, in Connecticut and want to see particular land uh, preserved. I'm wondering how uh, these towns like Simsbury, how do they respond to uh, single family subdivisions and those plans to come into town? Are they still concerned about open space? 
So if you look at the housing permits of what the town is in fact allowing to be developed, they are allowing single family homes to be developed. So it's not that they're anti-development um, in, in entirety, it's they're not allowing multi-units at the same rate as, as they are affordable housing units or naturally occurring or deed restricted. Um, so it's, 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 it serves as a huge barrier to get some affordability into some of these communities. Um, another example, you asked for some examples, is Oxford. Um, there was, there's been a long-standing um, battle there as well of, uh, to get some affordable housing, naturally occurring affordable housing, with some of the, the housing set aside for um, people who make below a certain income threshold. And, um, you know, Sometimes people use code words um, to to sort of say what they are, what their intentions are for not allowing it. Um, at the time, the first selectman said, "I'm I'm sure that um, he was worried about the parking and what having on what what is what was currently at the time um, agriculture land, farmland um, being converted to a, a subdivision of saying um, being worried about traffic." And what he said at the time. Um, during the public meeting of when they were voting on, I said, I'm sure they could have a li their little parking spaces, but somebody throws a party for Cinco de Mayo or something else. And you're, pretty soon you can't park there. Um, and so I think, you know, there's, there's language that, that sometimes shines through as far as what's the true intention here of, of what, why aren't these properties being allowed to be developed? Well, I was talking with uh, Terry earlier, the Shelton farmer, when we bring up conversations about uh, expanding the types of housing in our state, uh, oftentimes uh, people point to, well, let's look at what cities like New Haven are doing. And I'm wondering why the conversation is always that affordable housing should be in cities only, Jackie. Well, cities do tend to be much more inclusive when it comes to what they allow to be built. And so, and let's be clear, New Haven does need more affordable housing. Hartford needs more affordable housing. You know, there, there's a need, it's not just located to one single city. Um, there, there's a great housing need for folks to be able to afford where they live. There is a, um, there are a lot of people in this state that spend a large portion of their income on housing above what experts say is recommended if you're going to be so-called housing insecure, that you're house, house poor, um, that you're spending just too much of your money on, on your housing costs. It, it leaves little for things like food, daycare, all the other expenses to life. So, um, but when it comes to, but to your question about why it, it tends to end up in places like New Haven, um, again, that's because that's, they tend to have less restrictive policies in place that allow for affordable housing. Um, they see their role in developing, just like Hartford sees their role in developing places for people to live where they want to live. Mm -hmm. Coming up, we're going to hear more from Jackie Rabe Thomas from the Connecticut Mirror about some proposals before the Connecticut General Assembly that uh, could uh, help housing authorities, in particular municipalities where there's such a need, uh, maybe having uh, finding these uh, people housing right outside uh, the housing authority in border towns and some of the, the conversations around that. Uh, but I wanted to take a call now of Fortune is calling in from East Hampton. Fortune, you're on the show. Hi. How are you doing? I'm doing well. 
Um, I've been applying for 490 for four years now, and in that period of time, we've gone through three assessors, so it's been sort of difficult. And some people don't seem to understand this long-term investment involved in crop development and taking care of a farm. Uh, and there is a need for low-income housing, but I'm afraid that my land has become a target because uh, it could be gained at a low price and because uh, I'm a single owner of that property. The land is not really developable for houses, and it is very important to be a flyway for birds. It is also adjacent to a land trust. Uh, but there are some people involved who are pushing to sell the property, and I don't think that's right. Well, Fortune, you mentioned uh, floor 90, so that is uh, to preserve the land for agricultural use only? Yes. Uh, Jackie Rib thomas uh, how do you respond to uh, Fortune's uh, point about uh, the land that uh, she's trying to preserve that may not be suitable for uh, different types of housing? So towns have the right to preserve open space. There is a value in having open space. Um, but a lot of towns, in fact, aren't planning for that. It's a, um, you know, I can name several towns that have never really spent the decades that they've had under the Fair Housing Act to plan for affordable housing. So while it's easy to sort of pick one property over another of sort of and have these explanations of why it's not, um, why it shouldn't be developed, um, that's fine. But what's the what's the big plan for developing somewhere else if that's if if that property is off limits for open space where's the other property that's going to provide for um, some more diverse housing in that community you can join our conversation as we talk about housing in our state 888-720-9677 or find us on facebook and twitter at where we live on zoom jackie rape thomas who reports for the connecticut mirror i wanted to bring into the conversation now sarah bronin who's calling in she's founder and lead organizer of desegregate connecticut or desegregate ct sarah welcome to the show thanks for having me lucy uh, you have a very, very interesting project with this coalition of nonprofits where you have released a map of the state of Connecticut to show how our communities are zoned. Can you tell us what you found? Yeah, so the Zoning Atlas is a collection. Uh, it's, a, it's a public publicly available map that uh, has basically put into visual form all of the zoning uh, laws in the state. We have 169 towns. We have 180 zoning jurisdictions because we have some boroughs, villages, and private associations that zone. Um, and the zoning map uh, tells a story about how communities treat housing. And specifically, you know, maybe the, the biggest thing that we found after looking through 30,000 pages of zoning regulations is that single-family housing is allowed as of right on 90.5% of land in Connecticut whereas uh, four-family housing is allowed as of right on just about 2.2% of four-family uh, of uh, land in Connecticut. So there's a big difference between the types of uh, zoning that our communities have, and you can see that pretty clearly illustrated on the map. Mm. Uh, when we talk about uh, preservation of land, this is something that uh, you study and have written about. How should towns balance the idea of 
preserving open space or preserving farmland with this very important need that we have in our state, which is a lack of affordable housing. And we're not just talking about low income individuals, but when we think about young professionals, the elderly, there's just not a lot of diversity in our state when it comes to housing. Yeah, I, I actually, so I'm a preservationist and an environmentalist and, of course, working now on, on housing issues, but I think that they are all completely intertwined and interlinked. Take Shelton, for example, where uh, Mr. Jones uh, was calling in from and, and talking about his farm. Just looking at our zoning atlas, you can see that 78% of Shelton is zoned for one-acre minimum single-family housing. And just 3% of land in Shelton allows for anything more than two-family housing on it. So what does that one-acre minimum do? Well, it actually pushes development further and further outward, further and further into the farms like Mr. Jones's farm, um, and it eats up land. It basically uh, locks in sprawl. So we see that happening all over the state where our zoning codes, our local zoning codes, lock in sprawl instead of what they should be doing, which is concentrating housing opportunities in places where development already exists around our small town main streets, around uh, train stations, uh, in uh, adding units to single family housing that already exists through accessory dwelling, uh, accessory dwelling units. And the reason this is really important is because while uh, the Jones family farm seems to be doing very well and has found a way to preserve, uh, preserve, the, the, the land that we need to feed ourselves and our society, many farms have not suffered, have suffered a different fate. So over the last, you know, since 1985, I think the statistics from UConn's Clear Institute say 16% of agricultural land has been lost. And that's a really, really big problem. The reason for the problem is in part zoning laws that encourage us and in fact require us to eat up farmland and forest, by the way, when we build housing. I wanted to um, zero in on a couple of things that you said, uh, Sarah Bronin, again, who's a founder of Desegregate uh, CT, uh, also with us, Jackie Rabe Thomas, with the Connecticut Mirror here on where we live. Uh, you mentioned uh, the importance of uh, expanding housing diversity uh, near downtown areas. I think often about that term transit-oriented development. And so when we look at the zoning that's, that are, that's in these different towns that your map shows, um, how much of that is actually actually happening in terms of having these multifamily units near areas where it makes sense? Well, it, it, it really varies, of course, in the big cities. Uh, the, the zoning atlas shows that there is a significant portion of the area around a tra- train station to be zoned for four-family or more housing. And by the way, the zoning atlas is online at desegregatect.org slash atlas in case you want to follow along while I'm, while I'm speaking. Um, but it, it also shows that um, that around the train stations in suburban areas, uh, you don't see the kind of zoning that would help us capitalize on the state's investment and provide uh, opportunities for housing in places that it's environmentally, and I guess from an agricultural lands perspective too, uh, smart to do so. So you can actually see on the map by clicking on the layer that says, rail, CT, fast track, and ferry, that that layer will pop, will, will uh, create on the map an a, a, a indication of where train stations are, as well as the half-mile radius of that of those stations. The half-mile radius is about a 10-minute walk, 
And it's within that area that our group is proposing that the state take a more careful look and have a more coherent state policy uh, for land use in those areas. Jackie Rabe Thomas, uh, when we talk about these suburban areas uh, and how they're zoned, as Sarah mentioned, uh, areas that would make sense to have multifamily units, what are what are the town's uh, perspective? What are they saying when it comes to why a particular project like that doesn't work for them? So, I, I mean, it really comes up to the local authority that they that they think it should be their path forward to decide how to get affordable housing or housing diversity into their communities. Um, housing advocates will remind you that they've had decades to do this. Um, there's several proposals before the legislature that do consider changing this dynamic a little bit. Um, you know, there's a bill that would um, require transit-oriented development within certain um, a certain share of, of land within transit-oriented hubs to have um, affordable housing components, or, or sorry, not affordable housing, but density um, components to it. Um, there's another proposal that would require the way that schools are funded, that it be tied to affordable housing, that what, whether or not a town is um, being a good actor in developing affordable housing in their community. Um, the Senate president, Rotem, he is proposing tying some property taxes to homes over $300,000 um, and, and basing that on how much affordable housing is in that community. Um, so prorating it based on the, the tax uh, on those homes based on how much affordable housing. So there's a lot of different ways to sort of tackle this um, in the legislature. Um, it, it remains to be seen whether or not any of those proposals will gain enough momentum to sort of change this dynamic. Um, Connecticut very much is a home rule state. Um, the governor, you mentioned um, transit-oriented development. The governor very much talks about transit-oriented development, about when you ask him about affordable housing, that's his go-to response. Um, but the reality is he set up a transit-oriented development panel over a year ago, or sorry, more than a year ago, and they haven't met in a year. Um, and so, you know, they, they're not planning for Trans, there's no sort of working group to sort of push forward at the executive branch level on transit-oriented development, um, and there was no proposals this year that on the governor's bills to do that either. You can join our conversation, 888-720-9677. Marie's calling in from Bethany. Marie, go ahead. Hi. Um, I'm with a group um, that has been working for 10 years to develop a affordable housing project in town. Um, it's called Rocky Corner. Um, we had a two-year battle with the zoning commission in town to get permission to do 30 homes on 33 acres of former um, dairy farm. And, you know, everything that your, your uh, guests are speaking about, we have, we have encountered. Um, you know, the zoning battle had to do with that. It was zoned for, for um, three acres per house. And we wanted to do 30 homes. So we were able to finally win our battle by using um, the regulation in the state called 8-30G, which 30 of our homes will be affordable. Um, we broke ground in 2018. We should have moved in in 2019. We are still not moved in. And what we're finding is that um, this wonderful project that we're so excited about that's conserving farmland, we're giving some land to the, the Bethany Land Trust. We're 
building energy efficient homes that uh, have passive solar and active solar, um, you know, built in. Um, we're just not getting the support from the state or or from our town. And one of the biggest issues that we've had towards the end here is that um, because Bethany is a rural town and we only have wells and septic to um, install, um, the Department of Public Health told us that we could not own our water system, that the South Central Regional Water Authority needed to own our water system. And we have been working for well over a year and a half to two years to get um, an agreement with South Central Regional Water Authority for a water system that meets their approvals that we have to pay for. So it's ended up being double the money that we thought it would be for the water um, system. And then after we build it and pay for it, we give it to the Regional Water Authority, and then they charge us for water. It's crazy. And um, I, you know, I don't know where this needs to be to be addressed. I, get, I think actually at every level, state and, and local level, this needs to be addressed. Um, so I'd, I'd love to hear some comments from your guests about that. Thank you, Marie. Uh, Jackie Rabe Thomas, uh, from hearing Marie's uh, story, uh, so many barriers. I mean, how many of these projects that are proposed never make it to fruition because of, as Marie mentioned, uh, there is one uh, challenge to the next when it comes to developing and making sure that uh, the town gives permission for this type of project? I think that's a, a pretty common story if you talk to developers um, who are trying to develop. Um, a project comes to mind in Newtown that has been trying to get sewage access. Um, that's right off the, the highway. It's, you know, it's close to a closed prison. Um, and the prison, the state prison has sewage capacity that it's, you know, the developer has been asking, hey, can I tap into the sewage capacity um, because the town won't give me it and the, the state's like, I don't want to get involved. Um, you know, there's other examples as well in, in around the Yukon area um, in stores. And then there's also, um, you know, Westport comes to mind as well when you talk about a um, property that is uh, within a half mile of their trains of one of their train stations that also has been in courts for years trying to get access to some um, some sewage hookups. So I don't think it's uncommon to to hear about these stories about, you know, obstacles being in place and, and protracted legal battles. That's Jackie Rabe Thomas, who's a reporter with the Connecticut Mirror. Sarah Bronin's also with us, founder and lead organizer of Desegregate CT. After the break, uh, we're going to talk more about uh, what Sarah shared, that 90% of land in our state zoned for single-family homes. What does that mean in terms of expanding housing diversity? What are some options uh, that towns can consider? We'll find out more right after the break.
This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Today we're learning about ways Connecticut's zoning laws affect efforts to expand housing diversity that includes apartments and multifamily developments. My guests on Zoom, Jacqueline Rabe Thomas, who's an education, housing, and inequality reporter at Connecticut Mirror, and on the phone, Sarah Bronin, founder and lead organizer of Desegregate CT. Uh, Sarah, earlier you mentioned accessory dwelling units. Can you talk about that and how that might help remedy how uh, areas are zoned only for single family? Yes, so accessory dwelling units are smaller units of housing that can be developed on the same lot as single family housing. It can be put on a third floor, it can be put uh, above a carriage house or garage. It creates diverse housing in areas where uh, right now we only have single family housing. Interestingly, already across the state, about 156 communities permit some kind of ADUs, uh, but um, in that group, only 7% of the area actually allows ADUs without onerous restrictions, and, and those restrictions might include uh, restrictions as to who can live in the unit, um, only employees or only family members or only elderly people. Uh, it might include bans on rentals. Uh, it might include uh, onerous public hearing requirements. So, so they are a way to create housing diversity without much change at all to the neighborhood. Um, and I think it's, it's a smart thing that the state should do uh, to legalize it on a statewide level. You mentioned a smart way that won't change the neighborhood. That's often the argument from uh, different uh, towns. They worry about how their town will change if particular housing uh, is permitted. And I'm just wondering, uh, as you and others with Desegregate CT talk with uh, zoning boards around our state, what are the responses uh, to these proposals? Because uh, we know from Jackie's reporting, oftentimes uh, these proposals before the General Assembly they don't go anywhere because the, these lawmakers also represent towns and they don't want to be seen supporting something that takes away local control. So how do we get some compromise here, Sarah? Well, we've seen a very robust dialogue about this issue, and we have visited many towns around the state. And we, what we are seeing is that people are open to talking about zoning reform in ways that they may not have been in the past, perhaps compelled by the way that um, that so much that has happened over the last year has exposed inequities and injustice. Uh, We also have heard from many people who see housing diversity as critically important to the economic growth and development of the state. The the truth is, is that more people want to live like the caller from Bethany uh, who is developing. This, This project, Rocky Corner, is actually amazing. I've been following it. Um, it's, 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 there's so many different uh, dimensions of that project, but, but pe- people do want to live that way, but right now the zoning prohibits it, and, and more and more people are realizing that. In Bethany, for example, again, going to the zoning atlas, only 0.3% of the land in the town allows even two-family housing. So what they're trying to do at Rocky Corner is really challenging that, and they're doing it because young people... Uh, older people, low-income people, small families, they want to live in this co-housing type setting, not in a large lot single family uh, dwelling, which is all the, which is most of the housing that we built that we build right now in Connecticut. And we build that kind of housing because zoning laws dictate it. If we don't create more diverse housing, whether it's accessory dwelling units, 
or, um, you know, again, housing near main streets and transit, we will not actually have the state that we want. We're going to end up with the state that we're moving towards, which is a slow growth aging state that's eating up our farmlands and forests. Mm. Uh, I mentioned uh, local uh, planning and zoning uh, commissions. I'm wondering if you can talk more about when we think about zoning reform, Sarah. How do you uh, get uh, these different towns on board with that? Well, again, we've been at at planning and zoning commissions, at local meetings, at, um, at, at just general conversations in every part of the state at this point. And what we've heard over and over again is, we're open to this. Um, you know, of course, there's always going to be people who don't want to change uh, the status quo because either they don't realize that it, it's hurting them um, or they think that they're benefiting uh, by it uh, in ways that others are not. But we've heard a lot of openness towards this. And so I'm, I'm very optimistic at uh, the, the prospects of, of real change this year. You can also see that in the coalition that we've built. It doesn't just include affordable housing advocates who have been working on these issues for years and deserve a big win this year. Our coalition includes environmental groups like Save the Sound. It includes all three historic preservation organizations in the state, I'm very proud to say. Uh, it includes economic development groups, broader social justice groups, uh, and most perhaps importantly of all, it includes those uh, planners, uh, architects, and city officials through the Connecticut Conference of Municipalities who have all participated in creating the system and realized that it's time for change. So Mm -hmm. I'm very optimistic, and we're hearing good things. Uh, Jackie Rabe Thomas, I wanted to ask, you know, it, it sounds great to hear that there's collaboration, more people are on board, understanding the the need for more affordable housing and housing diversity. Meanwhile, how is this playing out in the courts, especially from the federal level when they see uh, whether or not the state is following Fair Housing Act? Yeah, so um, there's several um, different avenues right now. Three different cases come to mind. Um, There's one in Woodbridge um, that is expected to wind its way through the courts if Woodbridge um, rejects this proposal that to allow a single family home to be um, demolished and the same footprint rebuilt, um, but have it be for for housing units instead. Um, And so that case is really challenging single family zoning, you know, Oregon has done away with single family zoning. Um, So it's sort of seeing, you know, what the appetite for something like that is and challenging the impact that a place like Woodbridge that has really not developed affordable housing in their community at all. to allow for some some diversity in that community. Um, there's another case that is um, before the US Department of Housing and Urban Development that challenges the ability to for someone with a voucher to be able to use their voucher in other municipalities. Um, so currently, our housing authorities in Connecticut are co um, coexistent with the municipal town borders. And so if someone wants someone, let's say Crystal Carter, the same person that I was talking about earlier, who wanted to move to Simsbury, um, but lived in, in Hartford, um, if say she wanted to move to Simsbury, um, she would have to get permission from Simsbury to move there. Um, you know, there are 
several cases that I can share with you is of people who did not find that process easy of moving from one town to another. Um, and so that's challenging the, uh, so there's a case that ch is challenging um, those housing authority borders, um, saying that it has a disparate impact on um, Black and Hispanic individuals because 80% of those who have vouchers in Connecticut are um, Black or Hispanic. Um, and then there's a third case that also um, challenges sort of what um, what what Connecticut is doing as far as um, disparate impact policies um, more, more globally. And so, you know, we'll see how those how those sort of wind their way um, through the courts, but really it's on the legislature this year. They have an opportunity to act this year on, on proposals that will in fact um, open the borders to more folks. Um, you know, there is sort of this um, discussion right now while um, accessory dwelling units and transit oriented development are definitely um, passed forward to allow for more affordable housing in communities. Um, they are, they are um, passed forward to do that. Um, there are some folks um, in the housing community who also feel that um, that's not going to entirely solve the segregation that, can, that is persistent throughout Connecticut's towns. Um, it's a good step to be sure, but there's still much more work than, than those two efforts as well. I want to thank Jacqueline Rabe Thomas for joining us again. She's education, housing and inequality reporter at the Connecticut Mirror. Jackie, it'll be interesting to see uh, what proposals uh, move through this uh, session. I appreciate your time today. Thank you for having me. Also, Sarah Bronin, thank you for joining us, founder and lead organizers of, De of Desegregate CT. Uh, that zoning map is certainly interesting, and it's a great tool uh, for listeners to understand uh, more about how the state is zoned. Sarah, thank you for your time. Thank you so much for having me. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Today's show was produced by Tess Terrible. Our technical producer is Kat Pastor. We'll be back tomorrow.